Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of Is It Shane Ritchie? The Adventures of a Wrestling Journeyman. My name is Carl Stewart, and I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time to listen today, whoever and wherever you are. Thank you to everyone who has recently taken the time to interact with us, and to everyone who has shared our posts on social media. Please do keep interacting with us, as it not only lets us know that you're listening, but it really does help us to improve and grow. We are now available on a number of different podcasting platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. And you can find links to all of the various places you can now find us through our page at www.comroypod.com. .vze.com That's www.comroypod.vze.com You can also download the episodes from there and the page does contain something of a rogues gallery of various people who've either appeared on the show or who we've mentioned in various anecdotes and stories. Please do check that page out and let us know what you think via our social media pages which you can also find linked from there. If you enjoy this show, please do continue to like, share, retweet and mention us to others, and we will continue to add more 100% original content on each and every episode. Episode 13 features the second and final part of our interview with Mike Musso, and thank you again for all the great feedback I had for episode 12 which featured part one of Mike's interview. This time we talk, amongst other things, about some of the more famous faces Mike has met and worked with, along with dealings with the Knight family and Drew McDonald, and Mike's experience of going for WWE tryouts in 2012. And of course there's more John Short related gold, as well as a lot more besides that, which I hope you'll enjoy listening to. Again, as with episode 12, some of this interview was recorded towards the end of 2020, so there are some references where the term this year will actually refer to 2020, and last year to 2019. Just to clarify that, for the sake of continuity. So for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 13 of is it Shane Ritchie? It's now time for part two of our interview with wrestler and promoter Mike Musso. And we pick up the chat this time, talking about some of Mike's more challenging experiences as a promoter. So, I mean, apart from me being naked for most of your shows, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges or problems you've faced as a promoter? 
your goal as a promoter is obviously to make sure that you're making a bit of money because if the show loses money, then you'll go out of business and there won't be any shows. And a lot of the wrestlers don't realise that. You know, that you're wrestling on a show, you want that show to be profitable. Uh-huh. You know, because if it's not, you're not going to have places to work. You know, and some of them lose sight of that and they're just thinking mm-hmm. about themselves, maybe misunderstanding their worth. You know, if your name is not putting bums in seats, then you're dispensable to some degree. So it's challenging sometimes making sure everybody realizes, look, this is a business. We've got to make this work if we're going to keep this going. Uh And that's a huge challenge. But there's also the creative thing. You know, they want to be creatively happy. You can't have people doing things that make them miserable for very long because they just won't want to do it anymore. So you kind of do have to try and keep people happy with some sort of compromise that is in the interests of the show. You can't sacrifice the interest of the show to keep somebody happy, although many other promoters I know do that. But again, you've got to keep focused that the first step, oh, you do it for the love of wrestling. Okay, well, the first step of loving wrestling is treating it with the respect that it deserves, which Mm -hmm. means treating it like a business, in my view. Um, So there's always a challenge with that and the advertising. And I've run over 250 live ticketed events at this stage. You know how many days it takes to promote a show let's be sort of less generous and say it's maybe just two days per show. That means I've spent over a year of my life putting up posters, which is both impressive and depressing at the same time. It is a challenge running a wrestling promotion. Some of the logistical things when things go wrong, we've only had to cancel at short notice one show with the exception of the COVID things. And that was due to a licensing issue that suddenly arose on the day in a venue Uh that we'd used plenty of times before. It kind of was what it was, but that's made me now, that's part of my checks now. I check more thoroughly to make sure licenses are in place. But just some of the logistical things. We once had, this was a couple of years back, we were staying at a travel lodge in Halifax. Mm-hmm. So we were either in Todmorden or Geisley the previous night, and the next show was in Newcastle. So we set off with time to spare. You know, we get in the van, we turn the key. It's not starting. The van had broken down and we're due in Newcastle in like four hours for set up. It's a two hour drive. So we had a bit of time on our side, but not much. So I'm phoning around. I had to make decisions on can we get the van there? I sent as much of the team as I could there and just kept two of us with the van. So at least most of the team we could get to the venue. It was going to take the AA too long. They told us at one point, they said, we can get a truck there within an hour. An hour and a half passed, and then I phoned up and they said, oh, I don't know why they told you that. We've got it here that they're not going to be there until 5.30 at night. So that's useless. That's not going to get our show on the road. We're not going to get there in time. So then I phoned around recovery companies and was getting quotes for private recovery companies to take us to Newcastle for our show that night in order to set up. The costs were going to be horrific for that. And I was trying to work out whether it would be cheaper to cancel the show and obviously would still have to pay the team that were on the road because uh-huh. it wasn't their fault. Sometimes if they're sitting at home and you phone and say, look, this disaster's happened, I'll offer to pay them and they'll be like, look, I'll just stay at home. It's fine. Don't worry. Or if they've turned down other work, you know, there's a bit of come and go sometimes. Uh, uh-huh. But there's certainly an argument that they should be paid, you know, if there's a cancellation on the day. And in this case, when you've actually got them on the road with you, you have to pay them because they're away mm-hmm. from home. 
So yeah. there was going to be costs in cancelling that show and then refunds. And I was trying to work out what the best option would be if it was cheaper to get the recovery truck or cheaper to cancel the show. And then I started looking to see if I could have another ring. I ended up, a guy called Mark that runs a promotion in the Northeast was a lifesaver. He stepped in and gave me a very good price on ring hire. And we managed to get that ring set up. I was stranded, so I'm booking the show from the travel lodge and rearranging things based on who was there and the few other people that we drafted in. And then me and whoever was there managed to get to the show just before the interval. And with the ring as our merchandise, and the merchandise is a big income for us. So that was another disaster that we weren't going to have merchandise there to sell. So just Uh before the interval, me and another wrestler, I never like being front of house as a wrestler, because I think as a wrestler, the first time they should see you should be in the ring. Perception, I'm quite grounded and I'm a nobody, you know, I'm not a star of any description. But if you behave like a star when you're at the show in terms of what the crowd see, then they will think they're seeing wrestling stars. So I try and avoid that stuff wherever possible. But we're piling and we start bringing all the merchandise out and setting it up. So everybody that's watching this match before the interval has also seen the merchandise table being set up. And they all, luckily, they swarmed to it. I think it was the biggest number we'd done in Newcastle on merchandise at that point. And then I arrived and the other guy had arrived in time to wrestle. I think we did a tag match later that night. And we arrived just in time to set the merch up, get changed, go out, do the match, then take everything down. And then wait for the recovery truck to pick us up. Because the Van Hire Company's recovery truck took us from Halifax to Newcastle. You can only use it once. And then I phoned my personal roadside assistants and I got them to take us back home from Newcastle back to Scotland. So we had to wait another four hours to get picked up. And it was a long, long shift. But as a promoter, I was proud of myself that day because I got the matches in the ring the punters got a show, and I was just amazed that we pulled it off. It was pooling our resources, teamwork, and to actually manage to put the show on was a feat and a half. That was my toughest day as a wrestling promoter, I think. Yeah, I can relate to that, because me and Dave have a show that we have referred to for the last 15 years as The Miracle Show. And the reason we call it The Miracle Show is it's a miracle it ever happened. Because we had so many things, like you were talking about, you know, we had so many things on the day that kind of hampered us from trying to get to the hall, for setting up, for all of these things. I mean, it didn't help being stuck for half an hour behind a taxi in a taxi rank in Glasgow because we'd gone down the wrong street. And we offered to pay this taxi to move to let us out because we couldn't back out either because there were more taxis behind us. And the guy just wouldn't move until he had a fare. So we were stuck there, like running late as it was, you know, in the middle of this fucking taxi rank in Rutherglen in Glasgow. I think I invented about 15 new swear words that day. Uh, It sounds miserable. Yeah. So we always call that one the miracle show because it's an absolute miracle that it actually happened. And we finally finished putting the ring apron on as the punters were coming through the door. So (laughs) that gives you an indication of just how fine a line it was with us actually getting that one on the road talking about struggling to get out there we once were running late for a show we took a wrong turn in the ring van and in order to get back out we had to get back onto this busy street where there was all this traffic passing luckily there was a trainee in the car with us so i just told him to go out and stop the traffic 
<laughs> I was joking when I said it, but he actually just went. He was like, "All right, okay." He walked out and kind of put his hands up. <laughs> so we uh, took the van out and then drove off without him. <laughs> I said that sounds horrible, but the venue was actually there. We had to loop all the way around to get back to it. So it was only a 30-second walk to the venue. But this guy, proper trooper, got out the van, <laughs> stood right in the middle of the road, hands out, let us get out. He went to get back in and we just drove. He had to at that point. Though. It just felt like the right thing to do. Yeah, you've got to take advantage of situations like that. Short stories. Yes, it's time once again for short stories. For anyone listening for the first time, this section of the show focuses on my experiences in wrestling with the wonderfully eccentric MC of many years' experience, Mr. John Short. Again, if you are new to the show, for a more comprehensive background on who John is, please do go back and listen to episode 1, as I gave a little bit more of an overview of John in that first episode. Over the years, I've made hundreds and hundreds of trips in the car with John, across the length and breadth of Britain, and have worked on hundreds and hundreds of shows with him. He's someone I actually think the world of, even though you might not necessarily think so from listening to these stories. Some of my favourite times in wrestling have involved John in some way. So, as I've mentioned on a number of occasions before, I tell these stories not to knock the guy. Well, maybe a little bit. But more to celebrate and share his wonderful eccentricities with others. I should point out that he is a friend of both myself and my family, and has been for a long time. He also has absolutely no problem with me telling these stories. Just to make that clear. Another John Short epic gem that I could share is a time that he phoned me to let me know about some problems he was having with his telephone line. I'd not heard from John in a few months at this point, and it flashed up on my phone that he was calling. So I answered it with all the enthusiasm that I usually give to John short phone. You know, hi, John, how's it going? And then he says, awful. And then (laughs) doesn't let me respond. He says, right, the reason I'm phoning Mike is I'm having some terrible trouble with my phone line and was worried that you may be trying to get in touch. Well, I keep phoning up to complain about it, and I keep getting Pakistan or India, and I'm not getting anywhere. And he went on to say how terrible it was and how people keep phoning him. And he's like, I got a call yesterday, and they thought my number was for a wood preservation society, which is entirely random. And um, he's telling me that anybody could be trying to get in touch with him and he doesn't know if they're getting in touch with him if they phone his number. And he keeps going on about the Indian call centre and the things that they've said to him in response and that they've forwarded the problem on. So I think the gist of it was that he was getting calls for this Wood Preservation Society. (laughs) And he, he didn't know if anyone was trying to get in touch with himself. 
the easy solution to that would have been asking me, and I could have suggested it at the time, do you want me to phone your number and see if it gets through to you? But <laughs> just number one, he didn't let me get a word in. And, <laughs> and number two, providing a solution to at least ease his peace of mind that he wasn't missing his own calls would have ended the part of the humour of the situation. So he's going on and on, telling me about these phone calls he was getting back and forth and the various different people that phoned him up. I looked down at the timer on my phone and the timer said it was like 12 minutes or something into the conversation. I had not said anything other than, hi, John, how are you? And when he said awful, and then 12 minutes of him telling me about all these problems. And he ended the conversation with, so I'm afraid, Mike, if you are trying to get in touch with me, you'll need to send a postcard. <laughs> a fucking postcard. What could be so important that I urgently need to get in touch with John and would resort to sending him a postcard? Not just a letter, specifically a postcard. <laughs> I'd, have to, I'd have to send him. But he was very concerned. You can imagine. He was very stressed, very concerned about the whole situation. I'm surprised you didn't get tied up in all this, Carly. Maybe he tried you and you missed his call or something like that. Maybe. Because he was phoning round the people in his phone book that he thought might be trying to reach out. He was really worried as well. I've had the same number for years. They're not changing my phone number. Did you ever get his old answer phone message before it got changed? Now he's got a very generic one, you know, this is BT answer, whatever. But did you ever hear the one that he recorded years no, ago? No, I don't think I did. I'd probably remember it if I'd heard it. It went, this is John Short on Bristol Double Seven. I'm afraid it's one of those machines again. I'm probably still in bed or on the bathroom. So would you please leave your name and number and I will get back to you as soon as I can. Your message is recorded after the first tone. Should you hear a second tone, the machine has stopped recording. Please, do leave your name, otherwise I wonder who's trying to contact me. Many thanks. Right, where to start? On the bathroom? Yeah, that wasn't a mistake. That was That's what he actually said. So, I mean, having never been to John's house, I can't vouch for whether he actually goes up on the roof to um, dispose, but... Um, through a yeah, tube on the or bathroom. something. There's maybe too much clutter in the bathroom and he now has to go on it. That's rather probably than actually quite close to the truth. <laughs> oh, amazing. The part about him wondering who's called, that is something that would happen. If John gets a missed call and he doesn't know who it is, I can imagine that would really bother him. <laughs> that mystery of not knowing. If it's like a withheld number or something like that. So the phone call that he gave me out of the blue about him getting the calls for the Wood Preservation Society, I'd forgotten about it. About two months, maybe even three had passed. It was like September and we're now on Christmas Eve and I noticed I'd had a missed call from John. You were waiting for your uh, Christmas Day phone call from Bobby Duval, obviously. Yes, yeah, yeah it, was a, <laughs> it was a day early. Oh no, it's John, it's not Bobby. Back then, before children, I used to have some cocktails on Christmas Eve. It was a bit of a tradition. I was about to go out and I noticed that I'd missed a call from John and I had one new voice message and immediately my eyes lit up. I thought, oh, this will be good because John's <laughs> answer machine messages are always classic. And he always says as well, hello, Mike, it's John Short from Bristol. Like, 
how many other John Shorts do I know with a Bristol accent? That there can be him? only one. <laughs> <laughs> and he says to me, he says on this voicemail message, I thought I'd better phone with an update because I didn't want you worrying over the festive period. That's my <laughs> phone line fixed now. So if you need to get in touch with me, you can call the usual number. And then, of course, he reads the number out just in uh-huh. case I've misplaced it. I don't know what happened with the Wood Preservation Society, but they assure me it's been fixed. And uh, we should have no further problems if you do need to try and contact me. It went on and on, you know, but the gist of it was he didn't want me worrying over the festive period. That's the bit that got me. It was just this idea that I would be that I'd been. First of all, it was three months had passed. And particularly over Christmas, he didn't want me sitting there really stressed out. Oh, John's phone's still not fixed. What are we going to do? How's Christmas going to work with John's phone in this state of disarray? That was the phrase he used. I didn't want you worrying over the festive season. You're sitting there on Christmas Day going, fuck, John's wood problem has really ruined Christmas. (laughs) Yeah, it would have have spoilt the whole thing. But since he alerted me to the fact that it was fixed, I was able to enjoy the holidays without any concern from... uh, For John's wood. Yeah, for John's wood. (laughs) John's wood didn't enter the equation. Good. And hasn't done for a long time, I'm reliably informed. Any equation. Oh, he's brilliant, John. He has no idea how funny we find him. No idea. (laughs) He's the most unintentionally funny person I have ever and probably will ever meet. (laughs) He's probably said this to you as well, Carl, at some point. Oh, he might be crap, but I'm honest and reliable. Yes, he has said that. (laughs) And I tend to agree with him, which sort of puts him on the back foot. I see. Reliably crap, John. I only book him for the mistakes, to be honest. <laughs> You'd want your money back if he didn't make a mistake. <laughs> oh, bless him. He's an absolute gem, is John Short. There was this one time when uh, Rolf Harris got done for being a wrong and not making light of that subject at all. That was the official charge, by the way. Being, being a wrong Being a wrong <laughs> Seven counts. I bet the Queen was gutted. It was like months after he performed at her Jubilee celebration. Eh? Oh, God, you find out that he's been at it. Obviously, John had a resemblance to Rob Harris. I think you sent him down to the didgeridoo once. And yep. so John's aware that we think he looks a bit like Rolf. And I said to him, John, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to give you more dates for a while because people might find it offensive. You know, you're looking so much like Rolf Harris. And he went, well, I must say I'm disappointed, Mike, but I do understand. I was like, John, I'm I'm joking. (laughs) Anybody else would, oh, fuck off, Mike, you know, and dismissed it. But John thought I was seriously telling him that I was going to have to finish him up. And also I can't use you because John Virgo used to be on big break with Jim Davidson and he's a bit of a cunt, so I'm afraid, you know. (laughs) The same about the big break thing. I hope you don't mind. I still send them out to the big break theme that you redubbed with his voice on it. I'm proud that he still gets sent out to the ring, you know, when I've been out of the business for eight years to that. Do you know, though, Carl, that he did not realise his voice was on that recording? He's been oblivious (laughs) for years. (laughs) Actually, it must have been one of your shows. Yeah, it was. It was one of your shows. I don't know where or when or any of that, but... 
I was talking to him afterwards and he said, have, have you heard like what they're sending me out to on this show? You know, this thing with the big break. And I said, yeah, I made it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's how it came about. Eventually, I drew his attention to it. I was like, John, can I ask you something? He's like, Oscar, why? I might not be able to answer. I said to him, uh, for years now, we've sent you out to your own entrance music and you've never commented on it. Do you like it coming out to the, your own voices? Like, well, don't know what you send me out to. I just walk to the ring. So I played it for him and pointed out that his catchphrases had been inserted into it. And he asked me if I would give him a copy of it. So <laughs> I burned it off on disc for him. And I just like to imagine that he's been providing this. to I don't know which other promoters still use it. <laughs> and I mean that in the nicest possible way. I just don't think he gets about as much as he used to. No, but he I like the idea that he maybe does a job for Brian Dixon and he says to Brian, here's I've a got CD. my own entrance music now. Yeah. <laughs> Here, here's a CD with my entrance music. <laughs> Passes it over. Oh, that'd be amazing. But no, that big break theme, I tried making another one. I tried doing uh, Guns N' Roses, Sweet Child of Mine, and turned it into Sweet Tag Team Time, but it didn't work properly. Yeah, you'd have to kind of get the timing right with him. Yeah, I can see how it would be amazing, but challenging to line it all up. There's a couple of clips, of like just sound bites of John that I've ripped. I don't know if I've put them all online. I put one or two of them online on like the John Short appreciation page. And it's just him saying silly things out of context. Like I've got him saying, it's always better when it's in the ring. <laughs> Just that on its own. What actually happened was he was plugging Polaroids and he said, you get your picture taken. And I said, in the ring? And John's like, yep, in the ring. And I was like, it's always better in the ring, John. It prompted him to repeat what I just said on the microphone. I don't have a mic. I'm just beside him, sort of like jabbing him on. And he's like, yep, it's always better when it's in the ring. (laughs) Um, the show sponsors was never a road I really went down until quite near the end. And this one particular show, this bill money job that we did for somebody, every match had a sponsor. So I couldn't resist. I just took great delight in getting him to announce the most ridiculous, like, Flugel McDougal's Hippo Strudel Noodle Doodle soft play areas, <laughs> stuff like that. Just getting him to announce this absolute nonsense. And, and he'll uh, just read whatever's written down. I came a cropper to that once. I edit my run sheets. Like, I'll usually just type over an old one because it's already got the times in and stuff. I don't know if I was doing this with run sheets when you were with us, Carl, but I tend to put the times on the run sheets, not like 20 minutes, but actually 7 o'clock. Right. 7.15, because it works as a guide for... Yeah where we should be, at what point in the card, what time it is. So if we're running late and stuff, it's a good way of you then try and fudge the make matches shorter or whatever, or longer, if the rare occasion that we've run short, to catch up with the time that's on the run sheet. So I just go in and edit them. But I forgot to edit the name of the town. So it's like, at the point, I think it was before we brand all the shows Wrestling Showdown now, but I think at this point it was just W3L Live in whatever the time was. Uh-huh. So we're in Pennycook the day after Grangemouth, and of course, 
I'd not edited the name of the town. So John's in the ring saying, uh, welcome to W3L live in Grangemouth. Well, no, we're not in Grangemouth, but that's what it says on my sheet. He actually said that. Well, if you know we're not in Grangemouth, why didn't you, like, you know, ad-lib a little bit? Brilliant. Have you ever seen John work with a projection screen? Don't think so, no. Oh my god, right. Some of our venues, especially when we do like a DVD, will have some pre-taped interviews to show or a short video package to build up the match that's about to happen. It doesn't work in a ledger when the sound's all echoey, but if yeah. we're somewhere where it's got a good quality of sound, we'll show like a little minute video package to build up the match that they're about to see because they don't know how we got there and there's a reason for that match happening. So I explained it to John. I had my run sheet very particular. It said screen in big capital letters at the three or four points during the show where John wasn't to go straight into the next match, but he was to sit out while we played whatever pre-taped footage was going to play on the screen. So I thought that was clear enough. You know, match one screen whatever the thing was match two it wasn't clear it was not clear to john the first match finishes the video package comes up john starts talking while the video package is playing so there's like wizards interviewing somebody on the video screen and john's mic's still live and john's saying the following contest is we don't know why they're playing this you won't be able to hear me over the top. I'm like, so I'm on headset saying, cut John's mic, cut John's mic. John's mic's cut, and there's like 15 seconds left, and so he ruined the little interview. And I was like, put his mic back on, and John's banging the mic. Well, before I was rudely interrupted, the following contest, and he just picks it back. I was like, for fuck's sake. And there was another three of those spots halfway through so we sent somebody out then to sort of tell him when not to speak but yeah he was actually angry at us for playing the video (laughs) oh that's brilliant but he just wasn't familiar with that format Uh it's not something he'd ever encountered before so it confused him (laughs) the last time we did Beric upon Tweed um, and we we might pick it up again because we used to pack the place and it just tailed off Sometimes I think you have to leave it a few years if the audience has dried up, because uh-huh. the thing about wrestling audiences is you're never going to run out of eight-year-olds. Maybe that was something Rolf Harris thought. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't joke. I shouldn't joke. I'm going to get myself in bother if I carry on here, Carl. Um, <laughs> but you're not. You know, the, the audience constantly turns over because the people that were eight four years ago are now 12 and they maybe think that wrestling's so cool anymore and you've got a new batch of eight-year-olds so it's always worth going back i digress um so we're in uh, beric upon tweed and it's a tag team match it was me and bob barrett where bob was working babyface for us for a little while which was bags of fun i thought i don't think bob was quite as keen on it I forget who we were on with but john's doing the introductions and he's doing the introductions whilst sort of getting in the ring i don't know why but he started speaking whilst he was trying to get in the ring, which is probably what caused what happened next. The following contest is a tag team. Con- oh! 
and stopped. <laughs> I turn around and all I see is John on the floor with his feet resting <laughs> on the apron of the ring. His chair came out from under him. You know how he uses the chair to get up and then steps in? Well, his chair must have fallen over and he proper like went ass over tit and ends up with his legs up in the air, resting on the ring, spread out on the floor. I was really worried for him. I got out and sort of helped him up, which I could do as a baby face. And we helped him in the ring. And, uh, you know, he was all right. I was really worried because he's not the most athletic or strongly built of chaps as John, especially these days. But he was all right. He didn't pop his hips out or anything like that. And, you know, I just said to him, be more careful, John. We don't want to lose you. We've got another job tomorrow night. And um, <laughs> Yeah, stuff your well-being. We've got another job. <laughs> you and G. Mackey was on the opposing team and he was making fun of John for falling over. So the match kind of became us fighting for John's honour because Ewan, right at the start of the match, this horrible thing had happened to John and Ewan had immediately picked up on the situation and milked it, making fun of John. And we were like, how dare you make fun of the great John Short? I'm going to show you, you know, and I fought in John's defence. And we called a spot at the end where Ewan gets in John's face and pushes him and John pushes him back and Ewan goes ass over to it with his legs in the air and we send them off to the big you fell over chant. For a near-death experience, we made the best of it. <laughs> yeah, he fell out of the ring once in CSF as well. He was announcing this tag match. He'd finished the announcement, but the tag, rather than start off with a lock-up, it was a hot start attack before the bell sort of thing. And he kind of got caught up in what was going on because he didn't get out of the ring quick enough. So he's climbed out between the ropes and as he's halfway, somebody hits the ropes and he goes tumbling. Like <laughs> I've seen the video of it. I wish I had a copy from somebody. Oh, poor John. Yeah, as we were talking about earlier on, I've got lots of good memories of working for W3L in that time. One of which, of course, is working with former WCW, ECW, so on and so forth star Tracy Smothers, who, as we are recording this, sadly has recently passed away with cancer. What sort of memories do you have of that time? Yeah, I was, um, my heart sank when I read the news that Tracy had passed away. He was one of those people that, in a business full of characters, it takes quite a bit to stand out. But Tracy did. He just seemed to be a very warm person to be around. He was so keen. I mean, you know yourself, Carl, you've probably come across plenty of people that have a bit of an attitude because they've accomplished one or two things. Uh-huh. And for all Tracy had done in his career, which was everything from wrestling the bear to working for Vince McMahon at WWE, there was no attitude. He wanted to be part of our team for that short time. It was like he really wanted to just be one of the boys in our team for yeah. the time that he was with us and he was keen to share stories and share any knowledge that he could pass on and there was just he was one of those people that it's a cliche but he lit up the room uh-huh he was very keen to sell dvds as well as i recall but um... yeah, yeah aren't we all <laughs> <laughs> no I, i've got very good memories of working with him for you I'm surprised you didn't fire me that night, to be honest, for what should have been a 15-minute match going about 50 minutes in the end. But um, it was great fun being in there with him. We did, like I say, it must have been about 50 minutes in the end, approximately four or five minutes of which was actual wrestling. 
horrible, you know, to watch back on tape, but great on the oh, night. Matches the on the special that we're releasing at the moment. You're not selling oh, it for me. It's a fantastic. <laughs> it's, it's epic. Yeah, it was an epic. I'll give you that one. <laughs> but no, it was great fun. He was one of them guys, like you say, he was very giving. And he didn't brag about his accomplishments where he very well could have done, you know, given everything that he'd done, like you said. And I have come across plenty of people like that. But no, he was very giving. As you say, he just wanted to be there. He wanted to be part of the team. He wanted to be a part of the show. And that love for simply just going out there and wrestling, you know, kind of shone through. And I think that's actually what makes that match, regardless of maybe how you remember it, having watched it recently. Um, yeah, he's not doing a move a minute like you might see now on television, but you can tell how much Tracy enjoyed performing. Uh-huh. And that makes anything he does watchable because it shines through the camera or your eyes as you're watching it. You know, you guys did go 40 minutes. I don't know how many minutes of that was wrestling, but the crowd were, I've watched it recently, Carl. They were with you guys the entire way. So whilst it did maybe overrun just a tad, (laughs) the audience that night were loving it. And you could actually tell that Tracy was loving it too. I don't know if you could tell that when you were working with him, how much fun he was having, but that's the impression I get when I watch the matches that he had for us that weekend, is that even doing these little shows in Scotland, uh-huh. he was just having a ball being out there in front of a small crowd. Well, I know that he said to me, well, more than once afterwards, actually, when we were back in the dressing room and we saw each other at various different shows after that, he appreciated being on with someone that didn't just want to do, as you say, sort of a move a minute, He appreciated being on with someone who could work a crowd and do that old style of match. It didn't hurt my opinion of him. He sort of praised me to the hilt to everyone that would listen. But um, despite what I've said about the match being horrible to watch back, I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, it was a great experience. And on the night, it was tremendous for that crowd. Yeah, exactly. As a live performer, you know, there was just an energy there, even though it was very much less is more. There was an energy to everything that he did. I remember that weekend as well. They were saying he wanted to be part of the team. Can you remember the barbecue the next day? He wanted to be there as well. There's so many that would have just stayed up in the hotel room. Tracy actually came with me round Tesco's to make sure that we got the healthiest barbecue food that we could. He's like, man, you got to get the turkey, not the beef. It's better for you, man. And he dotted around Tesco's with his bum bag and his shorts and sandals looking for these <laughs> turkey sausages. But just such a character. He was just so much fun to be around. I like people like that, that despite all the success and all the fame that they've had, are quite happy to be human. I mean, can you imagine certain people wandering around Tesco's looking for meat for a barbecue? What about some of the other more famous people that you've worked with? How would you compare them? I mean, everybody's got their own personality. I don't think I've had any bad experiences. I met guys right at the start that were touring with Klondike Jake's outfit, like Mm -hmm. Tatanka, Barbarian, Jake. You know, Jake was my first big experience with a name, if you like. Honky Tonk Man, Axel, Jim Duggan. The ones that I met in my younger days, I think I was still very much starstruck. So... I think the impressions that I had of those kind of guys were more how open they were to communicating with me and sort of satisfying my curiosity at having a chat with somebody that I'd seen on the television. 
like I remember Honky Tonk Man was really, really chatty. You know, he was quite happy to talk. And I think he kind of liked that you knew who he was and he liked that he could see that the young guys were sort of in awe of him. And again, he was a really fun character. I've not got anything bad to say about Honky. I accidentally woke him up, actually, in his hotel room. I got off on the wrong floor and I was banging on the door thinking that my key didn't work, trying to get my roommate <laughs> to open up the door. And Honky, with his sideburns all over the place and stuff, opened the door and he was like, what the hell are you doing, kid, knocking on my door? I apologised and he kind of, you know, he worked the situation a little bit, made me kind of run about for him and whatnot. But at the end of the tour, he gave me this leftover beer. He couldn't take it on the plane. Whereas on that same tour, Jim Duggan, who I've never heard anybody say anything bad about, on this particular tour, he struck me as being quite introvert, just sitting, minding his own business, didn't really want to talk to you. I think that's because I was this annoying young kid at the time. Whereas now it's more like guys that are open to having a conversation and people that you meet that maybe have their feet on the ground still and a self-awareness about where they've been and who they are and what they are now and what they can offer versus people that maybe have had a bit of success and the success has gone right to their head and they think that they're still on WrestleMania when they're actually in a local town hall somewhere. It's a funny old business because it is just so extreme. Like there are guys that one year they're wrestling in front of 60,000 people, 80,000 people in these big stadiums. The next are... In Kelty. Yeah, in Kelty. An servicemen's club. Yeah. It's mad. But more recently, like there's a lot of guys that I get along quite well with that have done the TV work with WWE and did quite well. Like Joe Legend is somebody I consider a friend. I speak to him regularly. You know, he does come over to do work for W3L, but we get along really well and we're friends. You know, I think he was really underrated. I don't know if you've ever seen Joe's work, Carl. I have seen him. I've never actually met him. I know quite a few people that know him and they all say good things about him. I haven't seen a lot of his work, but I have seen him. Yeah, a really nice guy and kind of similar to what we're saying about Tracy, like everybody's got good experiences with Joe. You don't hear many people saying anything and don't think I've ever heard anybody say anything bad about him. And he cares about people and, you know, he wants to do his best for you. And wrestling wise, I think he's really underrated. He puts in a shift. He wants to make everybody he works with better. So many people have had one of their best matches with Joe Legend. I think he's really underrated because people just remember what he did for that brief time in WWE. I remember meeting Scott Hall within the past few years at a WAW show. I was actually really, you know, wanted the opportunity to get to learn from him if I could, so I asked him to watch my match. It was the second match that I'd had that day, and it was a tag match, and a few things happened, and basically I didn't do anything. I didn't really get in, and I think there was a couple of missed spots or what have you, and I hardly did anything, I got back and I saw Scott and I kind of thought, oh shit, that wasn't my best performance. And I bloody asked Scott to watch the match to give me feedback. It kind of wandered over to me and I was like, did you see that, Scott? He's like, oh, no, man, I'm sorry. Did you ask me to watch it? You know, he totally forgotten. <laughs> I asked him to watch it. So I was like, no, no, it's okay. Don't worry. I'm kind of glad you didn't see it. It's fine. <laughs> but he was really friendly. And it's kind of an honour when the people that influenced you to get into the business, you end up rubbing shoulders with and being part of the same card. I just think that's cool, the way it goes full circle like that. Well, talking about WAW, one group of people who have seen their star really rise the last few years and become much more famous is the Knight family. Now, I remember working on a lot of shows for you with the Knights. 
What are your sort of memories of that time, you know, working with them? Nothing but good things to say about the Knight family. Again, I feel like I use this to describe so many people. He's a character. <laughs> but, you know, they, they are characters. I had no business starting wrestling shows, but you know yourself, there wasn't much going on at the time. Tours that were being run had been scaled back, particularly in the Fife area, there was nothing. But I asked Ricky, because he had a reputation, you know, a good reputation, and I knew he was kind of a bridge between the older days and the newer school kind of mentality. So I hunted out Ricky, you know, I want to get a ring, I want to get some wrestlers. I'm not very experienced myself, so I'd like to get some really experienced people on board to help me and to help us do a more professional event. You know, he didn't rip me off, you know, and he could have. <laughs> and many people tried over the next few years before I got my kind of wits about me as to what was and what wasn't. But, yeah, um, sorry you know, about that. <laughs> no, we were always good. But you know, you try, like sometimes you ask somebody and they maybe don't know who you are or if you know what you're talking about or not. So they'll ask for something ridiculous and they're like, mm -hmm. well, he clearly thinks I'm a twat. <laughs> and you're just like, thanks, but no thanks. You know, but Ricky gave me a really fair deal for him and a few of the, you know, we had Zach or we had Julia and Brittany at different points in time. And they were all willing to help, you know, Ricky and Soraya, both very different personalities. So in their own ways, they wanted to help. You would see them sort of pitching in even with setup and stuff, uh -huh. um, which is something that kind of happens everywhere around the country, really, I think, with reputable people that they agree with the mentality that, you know, we should all muck in and work together. That yeah. seems to be a thing where in Scotland, it doesn't, like a lot of the people in Scotland <laughs> seem to think that that shouldn't be a thing. You know, and that if you've um, wrestled in air five or six times, then that's you a star and don't have to help with the ring anymore. I don't know. But, you know, the Knight family were just really good in helping us establish our setup and kind of show me the right way. I think working with Ricky helped me a lot as well because uh -huh. I wrestled Ricky quite a bit. But again, the enthusiasm of it. You said to Ricky, right, I'd like to do this match. And he would sometimes say, oh, I've got this idea. Would that be better? He'd tweak things and he'd ask if it was okay to tweak it. He wouldn't just steamroll over you. You know, if I asked him for a promo, I'd maybe ask another experienced hand to do a promo. And they'd be like, oh, I'm not really good at them. And can you get one of the other boys to do one? You ask Ricky for a promo. He's like, all right, sure. And he starts, you know, in that way that only he can, he starts cutting a promo. He was just giving, very giving, the whole family. It's great to catch up with them now and again. I was trying to get them up here this year before all the COVID stuff happened. You know, like every now and again, I'll go down or they'll come up. So I have maintained a relationship over the years. And it's great to see the success that they've had with, you know, the movie. And they've got such a cool setup. I don't know if you've seen the... I've, I've seen bits and pieces online, yeah. It does look amazing. I know that they've moved now, but their training centre that they were in, and I think I'm sure the new place is equally as cool, it was pretty much right in the centre of Norwich, and they had a shop front where customers could come in and buy tickets and other merchandise that they had on sale. And then they had like a weights room, they had a room with the ring, they had almost a landing area that was like a living room that had some tables and couches and TVs and stuff, uh -huh. a sun bedroom. It was like a proper good setup. Last time I was down just last year, I had a workout in the morning using the gym and then used the sunbed before going to the next show. It was a proper cool setup. Very, very impressive. 
Mm-hmm. And then the production values on their shows as well, with their screen and their entranceway, and you know the whole setup's very impressive. Yeah, oh, and I've got to say that I went to see the film last year when it was out, and it has to be one of the strangest experiences of my life. Just sitting in a cinema watching a film about people you know, but I'm pleased for them. You know, I always got on very well with them. I remember particularly we used to have a pre-show game of football. Because a lot of your shows were in sports centres. Yeah. We always used to have like a little pre-show kickabout. Yeah, just nothing but good times, good memories. It's crazy wrestling Zach now. I said to him last year, he's either the same height as me, maybe a bit taller, maybe an inch smaller. I don't know. He's either the same or taller than me. Yeah, he's a big boy these days. He's massive. And I said to him, do you realise the last time I wrestled you, you were like 15 years old and you came <laughs> to just above my waist? It was true. The last time I'd wrestled him was, I think, one of the trips that you'd been on. Yeah. And I was wrestling Zach when he was in his mask and stuff. Uh-huh. And then I was in a tag with him and Roy last year. It's good. Everybody's doing well. And I don't think they get the credit they deserve in terms of the time they've been around, the quality of the shows, the production values, how much they work. But I think a lot of people think that the number one promotions in the UK are Progress, ICW, promotions like that and they've done very well to build their brands and create this niche market with international appeal as well so i'm in no way taking anything away from them but ricky runs like maybe 100 shows a year for waw and they run maybe two or three times every couple of months yet you look at the talent that waw's brought through that have ended up in wwe or making it big in different places I just find it odd that when you measure a wrestling promotion's success by various metrics, you know, like, are they making money? How many places do they tour? How many fans do they get in? Some of the metrics, despite them performing higher than these other promotions, don't mm-hmm. count when it comes to the perception of these hardcore wrestling fans. And it's something that it doesn't sit well with me. It bothers me. Because perception can sometimes be confused with reality. No, I get where you're coming from there. Another guy that you brought in to work with you was somebody else that helped you when you were first starting off training. And that was Drew McDonald. What memories have you got of working with Drew at that time? I worked with Drew a number of times over the years. When I first worked with Drew, I mean, again, I'm going to use that word again, a character. Uh-huh. You know, his language was uh, was very, very colourful. <laughs> I remember the Scout Hut show. There was a disastrous W3L show in the early days where the venue cancelled on us and we had to move the show to a scout hall. I think there was about 30, maybe 40 punters there. And me trying to make the best of the situation said, I know it's not Madison Square Garden. And Drew butted in, he goes, it's not even my fucking back garden. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Mental. I wrestled Drew Galloway, now Drew McIntyre at that show. But yeah, it was a disaster. That was my first utter sort of fail. <laughs> the previous shows had all been, whilst they were rotten by the standards that I'd pulled myself to in the future, they at least had a decent attendance and had some semblance of going as they'd been planned. Whereas that Scout Hut show was horrible, a financial disaster, and absolute mess. But yeah, that was the first time Drew worked for me. <laughs> like the other guys, he was keen to help. 
he helped me more later on than at the start. Me, with all my enthusiasm, I think I thought, oh, Drew would be a good babyface to maybe take the belt off Ricky. And Drew was like, I don't want your belt. I'll be in Germany. So he ended up coming back years later, and I did a lot more of them. But even after that, like, it wasn't that he didn't want to help. Because whilst he was kind of up front and was like, I'm not going to be able to take many bookings in the next while. I've got loads of commitments. I'm not going to be able to come back. He still stayed in touch and he put me in touch with Oreg Williams and hooked me up with Oreg and got me on some cards there. And I think you were on them as well. Yeah, I was. And funnily enough, while we're talking about Drew, that was the one and only time that I actually got to share the ring with Drew was on those shows for Oreg. And I have to say it was an absolute pleasure. And I wish I'd had the opportunity to work with him more in the ring. You know, I was on plenty of shows with Drew, but I only got to share the ring with him that one time. It was Glenrothes one night, and we were somewhere in the borders the next night. I remember being in the dressing room on the second day, and Drew had sort of watched my match with Alan and given us a bit of feedback and stuff the night before, and Oreg was happy with it, and they had us on the next night. And you know that spot on the show where it's the tournament? the three-man parade. The reason I was in that spot was thanks to Drew. And the way Drew phrased it was he was the Scottish hero the night before with the flag and that meant he had to wrestle somebody that was pretending to be from the States and somebody that was having to pretend to be from Germany or something and everybody Uh waves their flags. And we're sitting in the dressing room in this town in the borders. I think it was Kelso. And um, Drew slammed the flag down and he said, I can't fucking be arsed saving Scotland tonight. You fucking do it, kid. <laughs> I'll tell Oreg. And he went off and told Oreg. And like he phrased it like that, but really it gave me the opportunity to work twice, to work with two different people that I'd not worked with before. I think I actually worked with Drew. So I, I don't know how that would have worked. Maybe it wasn't the countries. Maybe he was just a villain. But it gave me the opportunity for the first time to be in a sort of key spot. Very generous of him to give me that opportunity. And it meant he only had to work once and it was me that worked twice. <laughs> so it was that side of it as well. But, you know, I was thankful for that. And then years later, he spurred me on to put myself in the conversation with WWE. Whilst it was Robbie Brookside that got me in front of WWE for a tryout, It was Drew McDonald that first gave me the confidence to believe in myself a bit more and believe that I could be in that company. Well, I mean, let's go into that a little bit. Tell us about that experience of going for the WWE tryouts. At the time, Drew was still sort of the liaison with UK talent, and he was putting quite a few people forward for tryouts. And he would send like all the names and your pictures and stuff like that, and they would narrow it down to who they wanted to see. And just around the time that Drew had been like, right, I've got all your info, literally a couple of weeks later, I was speaking to Rob, and Rob was telling me, right, oh, that's me, I'm taking over now, I'm in that position. And I think there was a bit of a crossover period. I don't know when exactly he stopped having that influence. Perhaps he still had some influence, and Rob was brought on in a different role. I don't want to speak out of school, because I don't know exactly what happened, but I know it went from Drew being the man to see to Rob being the man to see for WWE liaison in the UK. But I've never not desired to bring in and surround myself with people and surround my team with people that have experiences that we can all learn from. Before Rob was in the conversation with WWE, I brought Rob up to Scotland. I was the first promoter in a number of years to do that. 
and he'd worked a tour for us so I was in contact and I wanted him back and he wanted to come back and we all got along great with Rob. Rob's another one that gave us a lot of his time and he gave a lot of help and advice and had a great time sitting having a few beers with Rob after the show and talking in the very small hours of the morning working through a case of beer. And Rob said, yeah, if you've given it all to Drew, give it to me now. Just send it to me again and I'll put it through. And yeah, I got the email, the sort of official invite. And it was a three-day tryout that I've been invited to. And it's Rob Brookside that I've got to thank for pushing that through for me and got me to that point. It was kind of surreal going down because that's certainly where I'd always wanted to be. And, you know, it can be a bit of a downer sometimes when I've not had that. I've not had that contract. And whilst never say never, let's face it, I'm not getting any younger. You know, at least I got to that point. At least uh-huh. I was one of the people picked. And it was the first time Rob had put together a team of people to be looked at as well. So it was somewhat of an honour for somebody as respected as Rob to put you on his list and push for you to be in. Because if he'd have presented just any old dross that first time, then it wouldn't have looked good on him. So Mm -hmm. it was kind of an honour having that trust from Rob. I was certainly very excited about the opportunity. I've never dieted like that before in my life. I was probably in the best shape I've ever been at because I was working so much on trying to strip all my body fat that I probably lost a bit of size. But, you know, I worked really hard for it. I took it very seriously. I knew they were going to try and blow me up. So I was training, doing all the cardio drills and stuff beforehand. I flew down instead of driving because I wanted to be fresh and ready. It was Birmingham. So I flew from Edinburgh to Birmingham the night before. WWE put us up in a hotel. So that was kind of surreal, like giving my name at the door and then later, oh, we don't have a reservation for you at the desk in this fancy hotel. And I was like, it's WWE that booked it for me. And they're like, oh, you're with the WWE. And I was like, I guess I am for the next few days, <laughs> at least on the hotel sheet. So, you know, that was kind of cool. We were all in our suits and stuff because the whole dress code thing with WWE and, you know, you want to dress to impress and we're sitting about in suits at the hotel and you see all the guys coming back having just taped Smackdown. I had a quick chat with Seamus who had seen with Drew one of my shows before Drew had went over when the pair of them went over together and I had to be there because I didn't want to miss any networking because that's what it is, you know. That's the bit that makes me nervous is the networking Everybody wants to try and put themselves in the best light. So you're all trying to talk and you're all trying to meet the right people. Because a lot of it in any sort of job interview, how personable you are, it can play a big factor. If they like you as a person, you're halfway there, really. So we all had to kind of stay there and be there for that night until it was safe to go to bed because nobody else was going to be hanging around. There was no more business to be done (laughs) in the lounge area. Rob's always bursting with enthusiasm. I'll use the word again, character. He was like, oh, good to see you, lads. Um, Have you met Canyon yet? Who's the talent relations guy in WWE now? And we were like, no, no, we've not met him. And he's like, well, hang on, I'm going to go get him. He might be in his room. I'll I'll, I'll go get Canyon. You lads stay here. Because Rob liked the Scottish team. He enjoyed coming up to see us. And he wanted to do as a good and introduce us formally to the head of talent relations. Me, Mark and Joe sat there for, I think, about an hour and a half. And um, we were joking, saying, I bet you this Canyon fella's in bed. And Rob's like knocking on his door going, come on, Canyon, get up, meet the Scottish lads, they're downstairs. Eventually, Rob came down. He's like, right, guys, just go to bed. You're going to need your rest for tomorrow. And we were like, that was us relieved of our duties for the night. But it's just a funny memory of Rob. 
you know, Rob came in with all the talent and he immediately spots me and the coffee boys and comes over to us and starts chatting away and then had us wait for an hour <laughs> the understanding of potentially meeting this upper management talent relations guy. The actual tryout itself, it was very physical. Um, it was, as expected, lots of drills, lots of cardio. The ring being bigger, that extra few steps makes all the difference. So, you know, that was challenging, working in the bigger ring and the, the extra gas that it takes to get from one side to another. But, you know, I thought I'd made a good showing of myself. Rob certainly gave some positive feedback. The people that are scouting was um, Regal and Gerald Briscoe, Jim Ross, and Norman Smiley. Norman was an absolutely lovely guy to be around. He was very hands-on, you know, like giving you advice and telling you how they wanted you to do things because there's certain things that are just the WWE way of doing it, and that's the way you have to do it if you want to impress them at a tryout. And that shows that you're coachable as well. If you're doing something one way and they say, no, 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 we do it like this, this is what we want you to do, then that's your challenge to change it up and do it the way they've just shown you. You know yourself, Carl, there's various different ways to skin the cat in wrestling. Not literally skin the cat, yeah. like from the outside to the inside, but you know there might be several different techniques of doing the same hold. And there might be several correct techniques, but they have, you know, this is the way we want you to do it. The third day was promo day. Um, it was very tiring because you had to be on the entire time because you weren't just being, it wasn't just that sort of tryout job interview type environment during the hours that we were being drilled and training. It was also that environment on the walk back to the hotel. You know, I remember walking back to the hotel, helping carry the camera equipment and stuff that they were using and chatting to Gerald Briscoe and Norman uh -huh. Smiley on the way back. Gerald Briscoe as well, you know, he was, I'm going to say it again, a character. That's my catchphrase on your podcast. <laughs> he was a character. We'll but... create a brand between us. <laughs> it was kind of surreal because Gerald has such a distinct voice that you've uh -huh. heard on television for all those years. They're all speaking to us about different things. And, you know, one of the things that was brought up is things that Vince specifically likes and doesn't like. And Briscoe would come out with... I've sat beside Mr. McMahon every Monday night for 30 years. I know what he likes and I know what he hates. But it was just like it's surreal, that distinct voice of Gerald Briscoe giving you uh -huh. this inside knowledge that would be invaluable if you were in that position of being in front of the big boss and knowing that there was certain things. He's like, if you do that in the ring, Vince McMahon will cuss your ass out <laughs> and stuff like that. It was a good experience, a really good learning experience. We did promos and matches the last day, and there's obviously stuff that I learned. I learned a lot of WWE-style drills that I can incorporate when I'm training and helping others. The process may have changed because that was a good number of years ago now. But yeah, it certainly made me better as a performer being in that environment. I did hope for another opportunity. Nothing was ever promised to me, but I was told, you know, mark the next dates down and we'll try and get you back and they'll see you again. And I kind of phoned up when it got to a month and it was like, give me another call in a week. So I phoned up in a week. They've got loads of guys from, I think it was Germany. It will maybe get you on the next one. So it went from, you know, mark the next set of dates down. And then it went from that to, oh, I can't get you on this. We, we might be able to get you on the next one. You know, I should have probably pushed it heavier. Like, what would I need to do to get seen again? What's stopping me? Is there anything that I can demonstrate that would improve my chances? Because I don't know if maybe Rob did try and put me forward and they're like, oh no, they had like a red mark next to my name or something. Yeah. Something particular that they didn't like. 
I don't know if I was a complete no-go for a specific reason or if I just never made it back into the top of the list. It was never communicated to me either way. And, it, you know, I probably should have pushed more at the time when it was still within a year or so mm-hmm. to find out what I could do to prove to them that I was worthy of a second look. But still one of the greatest sort of validation experiences that I've ever had, making it to the point of spending three days with them. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to talking about W3L now, you run at the, is it the ice rink in Kakodi now? Yes. So I'm guessing the shows at the Windsor Hotel are no longer a thing. That stopped when we had, um, I think, four people turn up. That was the worst event that I've ever, uh, it was a fundraiser, luckily. Um, didn't raise <laughs> luckily. any funds. <laughs> but no, I say luckily because there wasn't a wage bill. I think what happened is those shows had always done well because everybody was from that area and would bring people to the show. Right. We were there earlier in the year and there was the usual sort of 100 people packed into it and it had a great atmosphere. And then we did it again in the summer, and literally three people. It was mortifying. I think there was maybe six, because I did a show in front of three people before, and that wasn't mine. Um, we needed a venue in Krakodi at short notice to run an event that a TV crew needed us to set up for them to film at. And I went back to the Windsor to see if we could book it in and get an event organised at short notice. And they had lowered the roof and it's, oh, right. it just wouldn't be any, unless you had one of those ground set rings. Yeah. There just wouldn't be a way of doing it now. And the ice rink, we have a great partnership with them because it's the manager that used to manage the Rothers Halls, who we had a really good relationship with. Oh, right. Okay. He took over the ice rink. And one of the things he wanted to do was put on more entertainment events in the summer while the ice was off. So uh-huh. he approached us. And it's a great relationship because he's invested in wanting to make sure it's a success as well. Because we could run the leisure centre, but the leisure centre is just a booking to them. I'd much rather have a good, reasonable deal, like a partnership with a venue, than just hire a place because they want the show to be a success. So it's one of our strongest partnerships is the Ice Rink in Krukori. I remember particularly about the Windsor Hotel, this one day or night, whatever it was, there was a massive bread roll and beer mat fight in the dressing room i can't remember how it started but it was absolute carnage and it went on for about 10 minutes there was bread rolls and beer mats and people's ears and there was just everything everywhere and i don't know if were you there for that i remember a lot of things from the winds it was a really fun place they liked having us there as well the staff there yeah we had lots of good times there i remember uh, once the roof fell on me though in the changing room I don't know if you were there for that one, Carl. I, was I, just see, I seem there. to remember that, actually, yeah. I thought somebody had thrown something at me. I stood up and I put my guard up. You know, I thought somebody had just thrown something at me. And then I looked around and the roof had caved in. Do you still do the Windsor Awards? Yes, periodically. I don't think we did them last year. But yeah, we do throw out the Windsor Awards. Yeah, I'm gutted I came along a bit too early for them. Yeah, the concept being that they're awards that are making fun of the idea of giving awards for a little travelling wrestling promotion. And we have a lot of fun with making categories that are somewhat controversial. (laughs) It's our chance to lovingly poke fun at each other. (laughs) So, I mean, obviously it's been a long time since I worked for W3L. What's W3L of today like? 
Like a lot, I suppose, it's changed, but then I'm sure the saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same is true as well. It's been my goal for probably back when you were with us as well, was to create a touring wrestling show that would sustain itself. It's ticket sales. You know, I've always tried to look at it as a business because if it's not making money, then, you know, it's not going to exist. Uh-huh. So I think a lot of promotions book people from here, there and everywhere and run up a massive bill, which is really impressive. And they might have like this really impressive card to the sort of Internet folks. But the reality is they've lost money on it or they've not made uh-huh. any money. Our mission statement is to make it sustainable. The way things go now, you know, we scale the shows. So if we're in a small venue with 100 people, we'll have a smaller team. And if we're in a bigger venue, I scale that up and we have a bigger team. You know, one thing that's not changed is we still bring in different people. You know, I'm not going to spend thousands on bringing in this big American name that's fresh off television unless I can somehow look at a plan and think, well, this is going to make all that money back. Yeah. Because if you're not going to make that money back, what's the point in spending it? Uh-huh. Um, but what I do look for is people that are available to me that would be good to bring in that are more experienced or that have a bit of name value and that everybody would benefit from working with. So that's when you've got, you know, like Joe Legend comes over regularly. I love bringing Bob Barrett up. He's not been back in the UK for quite a while now, but Bram, you know, get along really well with Bram, and I think he adds a lot to the events that he's on. And when we last used him in 2018, there were still loads of people that recognised him from Impact Wrestling, which was at the time, I think, on a Freeview channel. You know, I was there in the backstage signings when people were saying, oh, I was watching you on TV a few months ago. The model is to bring people in if they're available and if we can come to a deal that makes sense for us. I've tried to make a point, and this was something that I would have been guilty of doing in the early days. I've tried to make a point of not having it be like a vanity project, Uh like spending loads of money that you're not going to get back. Because ultimately, if I can create something or we as a team can create something that's sustainable, you know, maybe one day a few more people could contribute to their actual living rather than just being something they get a little kickback from, you know. So that's where I see it long term. I'd like to make it more and more viable as a sustainable business, not just for me, because obviously the dream of everybody is, oh, I want to get to WWE, I want to main event WrestleMania. But for me, a dream is to just make a steady living in the wrestling business. And I think a lot of people share that. So I always try and keep that goal at the heart of W3L, that we need to make it sustainable, we need to keep building, we need to create new revenue streams. And one thing I identified as a weakness was our use of social media and branding. We were very much, uh, I think from the time that you were there, it was very generic sort of American wrestling in terms of the advertising. And, you know, we do try a bit more now to push a brand. We created Wrestling Showdown as our weekly YouTube show. Now, it wasn't so I could pretend that I was Vince McMahon running Raw. (laughs) It was so that we would have, you know, a way that people could interact with the brand beyond just coming to the live event once a year. So we plug it. You know, you can watch these matches. They'll go up on YouTube and Wrestling Showdown. I'm really happy with that brand because it has the word wrestling in it. And Mm. I'll actually see people look at our poster. They'll say, oh, it's Wrestling Showdown. I'm quite happy with that. That's part of my branding strategy as well, was introducing that. I'm quite happy with how that's gone. We've recently launched W3L Box Office. You yourself feature on that, Carl. Oh, um, never mind. <laughs> I'm sure mean? it's got some pluses as well. 
all our DVD content we've now put online because that's another route that people are now taking. I think 10 years ago, if I could have run the promotion off a Teletext page, I would have rather than embracing <laughs> the internet. Whereas now I'm trying much more. I'm never going to be great at social media. It's just not in my nature to be constantly, oh, look at me, look how great I am, look how great my friends are. I just think you should work hard, put out good stuff, and you know, good things will come from it. But now social media and online content is a big part of the perception of success. I still believe that posters and flyers are the bread and butter of promoting a wrestling oh, event. Gotcha, absolutely. I used to totally dismiss Facebook, but now Facebook's our second advertising method, and it does contribute now. I don't think it did at first, but now with you know advertising on Facebook, we are getting more response from that. And I have ways of measuring the response. And I know for a fact that that's now something that's benefiting us and is actually attracting people in and drawing ticket sales. So that's a big stride that we've made in recent years. But yeah, we're just keeping plodding on, Carl. Keep going from one town to another and keep working hard. It's great to get parents email in saying, you know, my kid loved it. I took him there for his birthday and he said it was the best birthday ever. You know, that's a reward. It sounds cheesy, but we do put smiles on people's faces and that's a massive reward for the yeah. work that we put in. And I just want to keep going with that. In the process of us looking at putting all our content online, the premium content with the box office, we've got an impressive video library. You know, I look back and I think this has been my life now for so many years. And we do actually have a history, you know, and you're part of that, Carl. In terms of W3L website-wise, w3lwrestling.com. Obviously, there's not much in terms of news on live events at the moment, but it will be posted there as soon as we get the go-ahead. The newly launched w3lboxoffice.com is where all our premium content is. And you can sample that content over at w3lnetwork.com, which is our YouTube channel. Thanks very much for letting me plug that, Carl. And thanks very much for having me on. It's been a lot of fun catching up. Yeah, thank you. It's been great to you know have this opportunity just to relive a few old tales and tell some new ones. And um, yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. And I wish W3L and yourself individually, of course, all the luck going forward into 2021. Yeah, same to you, Carl, and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll see you down the road. So that was my interview with wrestler and W3L promoter Mike Musso, who I'm sure you'll agree was an absolutely fabulous guest, and I look forward to hopefully welcoming him again at some point in the future. And please do check out w3lwrestling.com and w3lnetwork.com. The end of the interview with Mike, though, isn't the end of this week's show, as we still have two of our regular features, Song of the Week and Quote of the Week. And speaking of which, <laughs> you won't believe this, it's now time for... Quote of the Week! I say! Yes, it's Quote of the Week. And this week's Quote of the Week is... You give one, you take one. This story is from 2007, and involves a group of people Mike Musso and I talked about during his interview, the Knight family. The Knights, along with manager at the time and future wrestler Sam Nee, used to make fairly regular trips to Scotland to work for W3L, 
and some of us would also make the trip the opposite way to go down to work for them in Norfolk. They were all good fun, and Sam especially was a great guy I always had a lot of time for, and I had some good laughs with all of them whenever they came up to visit, and there is a story about a time Sam was managing me on one particular show that I really will have to tell on a future episode. We were wrestling in Edinburgh on this particular occasion, and a few members of the Knight family had travelled up with Sam for this run of shows. Rowdy Ricky Knight, his son Zack, who at the time wrestled under a mask as Zack Zodiac, and Ricky's daughter, Rhea, or Brittany as she was known in the ring, who would a few years later find fame and fortune as WWE star Paige. As we mentioned earlier on, many of Mike's W3L shows took place in sports centres, so we quite often ended up having a pre-show game of football, which was always entertaining, although I did often wonder whether the object of the game was to try and score goals, or whether it was actually trying to hit each other as hard as we could, as often as we could, with the ball in the knackers, as that's mostly what tended to happen on an incredibly frequent basis. By complete accident, I should also add. Sometime later that day at the show in Edinburgh, after we'd had our usual kickabout, and tended to our wounds, for some reason I can't quite remember, Rhea was going round backstage, trying to get people to engage her in a chopping competition. Not many people had taken her up on the offer, and those who had, had just let her absolutely wallop them, and had then given her a pathetic, gentle little love tap in return. I'd seen this happen a few times, and... To be honest, she was starting to get a bit annoyed by no one taking her up on the challenge properly. So in the end, I just went, ah, fuck it, and said to her, go on then. So she drew back, and to be fair to her, she did hit me with a pretty good one, right across the chest, which made a pretty good sound. She then went and stood in position for me to have my turn, and I think she was probably expecting another half-hearted, gentle little love tap, like she'd had from everyone else. Instead, I went absolutely full pelt, and the sound as my hand hit her chest is something I'll never forget. I must have caught her absolutely perfectly, as it just went... She then recoiled, screwing her face up, and just went... Fuck! The sound of the chop, in fact, was so loud that it actually brought people through from the next dressing room to see what was going on. The first person through the door was Zack, who really didn't look happy at all, and I just thought, oh shit, this is going to kick off now. However, the second person to come through the door was Ricky, Zack and Rhea's father, who took one look at his daughter, nodded, and just went, yeah, you give one, you take one. And as he looked over at me, just shot me a little smirk, and I just thought, yes. Thank you for saving my life. Empathy in the wrestling business is not yet dead. And maybe I won't actually meet my demise by being lynched from the roof of a sports centre in Edinburgh. In all seriousness though, they were really good fun. And I've got really good memories of being around them all and working with them at that time. Good times. As a little aside from that story... There was also a time that me and Liam Thompson were working together in a match at one of the sports halls that Mike ran. 
I'm not sure which one it was offhand, as some of those venues tended to sort of blend into one. At one point, the match spilled to the outside, and dotted around this particular sports hall were a few five-a-side football goals. Liam ended up sending me into the frame of one of the goals, which knocked me down onto my knees in front of the goal. And as I was getting back up, with the approval of the crowd, he went on to take a run-up, kick me up the arse, and send me rolling into the back of the net. He then turned to the crowd and ran off to do a goal celebration, which the amused punters absolutely lapped up. Much like the finish I used a few times where I got locked outside the building and counted out whilst offering someone out for a fight, I always believe in taking good advantage of your surroundings. And as I mentioned in episode 12, I did always enjoy working in different alternative venues, as it gave me the opportunity to be a bit creative, and do things you might not necessarily be able to do in regular town halls and venues like that. There were a number of other occasions during my career that I used various different surroundings to my advantage, and I'll look forward to telling some of those stories in future episodes. But for now, as we approach the end of another episode, it's now time for our final feature. Song of the Week Yes, it's Song of the Week. And this week's Song of the Week is a slightly unusual one, but it relates to a period of time that me, Mike, and Nathan Reynolds, amongst a few other people, spent together in around 2008, where we would basically just deliberately torment one another at every opportunity, just to see who would crack first, and how long it would take, basically. Around that sort of time, Ricky Gervais brought out his third stand-up comedy DVD, Fame, which, as fans, we had all watched. As well as the actual stand-up show, the DVD also had a special feature called Living With Ricky, where Ricky Gervais is basically shown acting in various incredibly eccentric and annoying ways to try and get a reaction from, and basically torture, his friend Robin Ince, who was the support act on that Fame tour. This made such an impression on the three of us that various things done during the video were instantly incorporated into our road trip and show-related banter. I already mentioned in a previous episode about Nathan and me taking to randomly shouting and screaming at each other. This was just one of the things taken from the Living With Ricky video, and whilst the first time I did it was actually to stop him falling asleep at the wheel, it subsequently became a regular thing on pretty much every trip, until we figured out that one of us was probably going to die if we didn't stop. Another part of the Living With Ricky video that became a regular part of our show day fun was dancing around Mike, singing, He's lanky, he's lovely, he's lanky and he's lovely, he's lovely and he's lanky and he's lanky and he's lovely. Which, as you can imagine, would become incredibly annoying incredibly quickly which is why we normally saved this activity for times when Mike was especially stressed, which normally resulted in the desired reaction. There were various other parts of the video that we incorporated into our own banter at different times, but what I've actually chosen for Song of the Week this week is something which could, of course, be incredibly annoying, especially when it was sung repeatedly at extremely inopportune times.
But when two large wrestlers sidle up to you and plant themselves, one either side, and then lean in and gently and seductively start singing to you, frankly it was probably verging on just being incredibly creepy. So without further ado, here is this week's Song of the Week, Halfway Down the Stairs, from The Muppet Show. And for full effect, you really do have to picture an incredibly stressed and incredibly annoyed wrestling promoter with two oversized, incredibly childish wrestlers either side of him singing this song and just trying their best to make him absolutely blow his lid. Not in that way. Halfway down the stairs is a stair where I sit there isn't any other stair quite like it i'm not at the bottom i'm not at the top so this is the stair where i always stop That's just about it again for this time. Thank you all very, very much for listening. And thank you to my amazing guest, Mike Musa. Again, if you've enjoyed this show, please do continue to support us by liking, sharing, retweeting our posts, and recommending us to others. And we will continue to bring you more original content on each and every episode. We have lots more very interesting interviews and episodes coming up soon, with some of our next guests including transatlantic wrestling star Tex Benedict and former wrestler, promoter, trainer, tape trader and lots more besides that, Darren Levy, both of whom have some absolutely wonderful experiences to talk about and I know you'll absolutely love listening to them tell their stories. Coming up over the next two episodes, though, is another fantastic interview with our very popular previous guest, Spinner McKenzie, as we discuss lots more people and events from the wild world of professional wrestling's past. And that interview with Spinner will also include your questions. Do keep a lookout on our social media pages for details of when those episodes will be out. And please do keep talking to us. We do love to hear your feedback and suggestions, so do keep them coming, and we look forward to bringing you more great content for a long, long time to come. So, until next time, this is Carl Stewart, signing off, and saying goodbye, and thank you.